take our Bibles now, if you would please, and open them to Revelation chapter 22. This evening, I'd like for us to look once again at verses 6 through 11. And we're getting close to the end of our study of Revelation. We are in the closing remarks of this book. And as I've mentioned in the past couple of sermons, the last words of great men are usually very important words. And how much more important are the last words that are spoken by God? Uh, We're close to the end of the canon of Scripture here. And when this chapter is finished, when we're through with this particular chapter, there is no more revelation. God has not spoken anything else beyond this point. We have the completed word of God with the book of Revelation. And that will be an important point that will... Uh, emphasize especially when we get down to the last four verses of this chapter. Now, in these verses, we we find some parting comments to believers. There's a plea for belief. There's a plea for the awareness of Christ's return, for diligence, for proclamation of uh, Christ's return. So these are very important words that God has spoken for his church. Now, if you'll look in chapter 22, verse number 6, The scripture says, And he said unto me, These sayings are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show unto his servants the things which must shortly be done. Behold, I come quickly. Blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of this book. And I, John, saw these things and heard them. And when I had heard and seen, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel that showed me these things. Then saith he unto me, See thou do it not, for I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren the prophets, and of them which keep the sayings of this book, worship God. And he saith unto me, Seal not the sayings of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. He which is filthy, let him be filthy still. And he that is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he that is holy, let him be be holy still. Each time that we return to this passage, I'm, I'm really drawn and impressed with these first words that we read in verse number six, where the angel said to John, these sayings are faithful and true. And I'm very much impressed by that because of the, I know about the great controversy that surrounds the book of Revelation. When we began this study, I explained that there are various schemes of interpretation. There are wide, wide ranges of opinions about this. There's a historical perspective on the book that, that says that the majority of this book has already been fulfilled, and we're actually reading things that, that have happened in the past. There's an interpretation that says that there's hardly anything here that's concrete or literal, and everything that we read is a symbol for something else. There's an interpretation that says that we are right now living these events in the present. And when Christ comes, then there'll be no time left. The world ends very abruptly, and then there will come judgment. And then there are others that have argued that the book of Revelation should not even be a part of the Scripture. Even some of the great reformers believed that, and only late in their lives did they come to the opinion, and struggling with this, they came to the opinion that this should be a part of the canon of Scripture. And that notwithstanding that the church had already accepted the book of Revelation for over 1,500 years as being a part of the Word of God. Then there are some that say that Revelation is a forgery, 
And that's because of the, uh, in, in deciding the canon of Scripture, there were a lot of spurious books that were floating around. Uh, most of those were written by the Gnostics, and they had false ideas about God and about man, the abilities of man. And those books were very quickly discounted because they didn't agree with, with the apostles. They were inconsistent with the writing of the apostles. But the confusion over Revelation persisted because it is such a fantastic book, because there's such surreal images that we, that we read here. And we, we carefully need to take note of this, that there is no book that could have been written by man that would treat man in such a way as the book of Revelation does, utterly disparage man, and at the same time it exalts the Lord Jesus Christ. And then there's still others that won't take time to study the book of Revelation because there's too much effort involved or they're unsure about it and so they don't want to tackle it. Still others want to fantasize the book of Revelation and they invent all kinds of strange narratives about it. There are movies about it like the series of books that were written by Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins, the Left Behind series. And there are people that become so infatuated with that side of it that they take the fantasies of men as if they have something to say that John didn't know. That they could reveal something John doesn't know. So it impresses me that we, that we read this in the sixth verse and we discover that God is very adamant about saying these words are faithful and true. And that's God's way of stating what we talked about in the, in the first part of this message, and that is the accuracy of the prophecy. This is a very important statement because if God had not attested to the veracity of these words, then we might very well think that John was just some old delusional, uh, old delusional man that was cast aside on a rocky, barren island, and there he was exiled. And uh, in his delusion, he came up with this fantastic vision about uh, what he sees in Revelation. But this is God's word, and it wouldn't be believed unless God is the one who said it. And so I, I enjoyed studying that part of it in the first message, uh, Final Thoughts on Believers, as we looked at that and explored the importance of that statement, these sayings are faithful and true. And then if you were here last week in the last message, we talked about the urgency of Christ's return. That's one of the things that's being taught here. Uh, this is part of the final words, and that has always been the hope of believers in, in all times since, since Christ left, that he, he left us with this hope, with this idea that he's coming back. And Scripture teaches the imminent return of Christ, and Christians have believed that. There's a certainty about the coming of Christ, while at the same time there's uncertainty about exactly when it will occur. And so there are some that have used an excuse and they, uh, they, they say Christ is not going to come. It's been so long, he's not coming. And so they're like the ones that Peter describes in Second Peter chapter 3. And he says they, they're, they're people that scoff at this idea of Christ coming because it has been so long. And so they say, well, everything continues as it was. It continues as it always has been. Tomorrow is another day and tomorrow will be just like today. And then on the other hand, you have date setters. You have people that draw attention to the coming of Christ in the wrong way. They say there's a certain date that Jesus is coming back. 
and that's what Harold Camping did last year. And you think about it, uh, what, what does that do for true Bible believers that, that understand that you can't put a finger on the date when Jesus is coming back? So what happens when somebody makes these predictions and everybody gets all excited about Christ coming back and they start uh, planning what they're going to do, uh, um, getting stuff put away and all of that and get rid of things and, and then just go somewhere and wait for Christ to come? What does that do to people who are true believers in Christ and understand that the day can't be pinpointed? Well, what it does is make the rest of us a laughingstock. It gives the, the rest of the world a chance to look at this and say, well, these, these Christians truly are crazy. They're a bunch of just crazy fanatics because they believe Christ is coming again. But we still believe this. We, we still believe like first century Christians did and second century and third century and all the way up to the 18th, 19th, and 20th. And right here we are in the 21st century and we still believe in the imminent return of Jesus Christ. And if I were to ask you, how many of you are disappointed by this? And how many of you are are just discouraged because Christ has not yet come? Well, I'm not bothered by that delay. It doesn't bother me. I do wish that Christ would come now, but I trust the Lord enough to know that he will come at exactly the right time. In his first advent, uh, the book of Galatians tells us that in the fullness of time, or at the proper time, Jesus came. And it wasn't a minute too soon. It wasn't a minute too late. He came at exactly the right time. And so I trust him to be the same way in his coming in the second advent, that he'll not come a minute too soon or a minute too late, and that this timing of Christ's coming is precisely configured into God's eternal plan. Jesus said, Behold, I come quickly. And that means that when he does appear that there will come a quick close to human history and those that aren't prepared won't have time to prepare for it. There's no time to think about it, no time to make up for lost time. He comes suddenly and then it won't be long before it's all over. So those are some thoughts that we covered in the previous two messages and uh, there's still more to say. So we're going to continue tonight with a third point uh, out of these scriptures. Next week we'll come back once more and take a fourth point as we uh, look at verse number 11 and then we'll be ready to move on to verse number 12. So we've talked about the accuracy of the prophecy and, and also the urgency of Christ's return. Now thirdly tonight, I want to talk to you about the responsibility of Christians the responsibility of Christians living in the light of Christ's second return. Now, we notice here in verse number 7, Behold, I come quickly, blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of this book. Now, we've discussed that first part, and we understand that now, I think. Behold, I come quickly, what uh, Christ means by that. So we move on into the second part of this, and it says, Blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of this book. This is another one of the Beatitudes of Scripture. I know you're familiar with Beatitudes. In uh, Matthew chapter 5, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus began that sermon with Beatitude. And here we find in the book of Revelation a Beatitude. In fact, there's seven of these in the book of Revelation. And I think that's an interesting number. Seven is such a prominent number in in Revelation. And so we find scattered throughout the book these blessings, the beatitude uh, that, that, uh, that are expressed here. The first of those was found in the first chapter. 
And this particular one reemphasizes the one in the first chapter. Revelation 1.3 says, Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. So you take all of this material from the beginning in the first chapter down here to the 22nd chapter, and it's bookended with this very same beatitude. These are very important words, and if we will keep the sayings of this book, we will be blessed. Now, that was a great promise for first-century Christians, that despite all the troubles that they had and uh, what they encountered with hostility in the Roman Empire, they could look at this and see the happiness or have the happiness of the, of the blessing of this promise of Scripture. It was a blessing to Dark Age Christians while they were suffering persecution uh, at the hands of Rome's equally evil successors, and that was the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church tortured and burned at the stake and plucked out the eyes of believers, tore their limbs from their bodies, uh, took babies from their mother's womb and drowned them. And through all of that, the people could look at this blessing remembering how Christ said that his people would triumph. And God said, vengeance is mine. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. And God's justice will be served. Those people will be condemned and God's people will be avenged. And then there's also a a blessing here for present day Christians because living in this increasingly hostile environment that we live in America because of our faith, there is an element of persecution even to that. And and living in this time as it's becoming... uh, harder and harder to be a Christian and America gets further and further away from God and the last indicators of the faith that our founding fathers had the surety of that that slipping away in the midst of all of that that we as Christians draw the same hope because the government could decide today you can't you can't worship in this building we're going to close you down we're going to lock the doors would that really concern us all that much it wouldn't me because we have the blessing of the prophecy of this book. God is, will control it all. So I'm not worried about that. So that's the kind of hope that we take from this. Now I want to show you out of this three imperatives or three responsibilities for Christians today living in the light of the revelation. And, and we find these in these verses. The first one is the willingness to obey. This is the first responsibility of Christians, a willingness to obey. Blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of this book. And keep this in mind because this first one is is integral to the understanding of the other two that I want to give you. In the original Greek, the word keep here is a very important word because it means to guard, it means to, to watch over, to protect, to keep in custody, to observe, to fulfill, to pay attention to, to give heed to. In verse number 6, the scripture says, The Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show unto his servants the things which must shortly be done. So the message that we have here is the message to God's servants. And what is it that good servants do? They obey. They listen to the voice of the master and they obey him. And the reason they do is because the master owns them. They belong to him and he has the right to command them. So God wants us to make sure that we understand this, that we are his servants. We're not here to serve self. We're not here to do our thing. But we're here to obey God. 
And you can't miss that as a part of the scriptures, especially if you've attended our Wednesday evening Bible study. You can't have missed that because this is one of the themes of 1 John. It's obedience. If we love God, John says, we will obey his commandments. If we want assurance of our salvation, we will obey his commandments. If we want peace and contentment and to avoid chastisement, we will obey his commandments. John says that over and over again in 1 John, obey him, obey God, obey God, obey God. And God says to keep the sayings of this prophecy. And if you go through here, you'll find there's much for us to heed. In the second and third chapter, he deals with the commands to the, the churches and uh, those churches in those, in those two chapters. And, and those were real churches existing in that time and they were emblematic of churches of all time. Now, what Christians really need, though, in this is to have the spirit of obedience. You see, there's some people that just want to post rules everywhere. They want to put rules on the church door, and, and you do this and you don't do that, and if you, whatever you decide to do, there's a consequence to it. And so if you don't obey, then this is what you can and what you can't do in this church. And so there are people that look at that and they obey because they've been threatened with rule. But that's not the spirit of obedience. Christ says that he wants us to love him with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and all of our mind. That's not something that you can manufacture with a list of rules. The spirit of obedience says, I will do what God tells me to do because I love him. You don't have to threaten me. You don't have to post the rule on the church door. You don't need to send me a packet of the do's and don'ts of of the ministry. I'll do what I'm supposed to do because I love God. I will be obedient to him because I love him. Now, I like what one author said, and I'm going to paraphrase him just a little bit here. But he says, I don't need a rule at my house that says, don't drown the children in the bathtub. I don't need a rule posted on the door that says, don't hit your wife with a shovel. Those things are understood. I do those things because the love of Christ does not permit me to do those things. So I hope that you understand this. I mean, there's a, lot, there's a lot of things that people do that we're never going to find out about. I mean, there are secret things that people in churches do, things that you do at your house, things that you do at work, things that you do after work. You're probably not too proud of some of those things, and you wouldn't want anybody to find out about it. And you know something about those things? There's no enforcement for that. Uh, the church doesn't know about that. And, and so you can keep on doing it, and the church may never find out about it. And that means then there is no enforcement against you. Now, here is one thing that we truly do believe. We believe that a church needs to exercise discipline. We follow a biblical mandate that when we, we find sin in the church, we want to purge it. We want to purge out that sin in order to purify the church. But if we don't know about it, there's nothing that we can do about it. So what do we do? We trust the membership. We trust the people in the church to be lovers of Christ and lovers of good and lovers of righteousness and lovers of obedience so that we don't have to have somebody follow you around checking up on you to see what you're doing. You know, people ask me, well, why why don't you have a Facebook page? One of the big reasons I don't is because I'm not too interested in finding out what everybody's doing. I, I uh, don't care a whole lot about that because I know there are a lot of people doing things that they shouldn't do. Maybe I ought to check up, but I find out, folks, anyway. I, 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 get, I get word, 
And I find out, you know, uh, or I don't want to find out, I should say, that there are church workers that come into church on Sunday morning and smile at me and shake my hand, pat me on the back and say, what a fine preacher you are, and then don't listen to a thing that I say. Uh, I, I know there's a lot of stuff going on that Christians do. I don't want to have a part of that. And so I don't do it because I just don't want to read about what everybody's doing. But do you know what the spirit of obedience is? The spirit of obedience is when there is no enforcement And you do what you're supposed to do simply because it's right. You do it because you love the Lord. You do it because it's the right thing to do. Now that's the kind of Christians that we need living in the last days. We need obedient Christians that do the right thing simply because it's right. They're saved. They become servants of righteousness. So they don't obey because they've been forced to obey. God's not interested in that. You know, he really doesn't think too much of a Christian that's that's obeying him just because they're keeping a rule. There's a rule for it, and that's why we do it. And, and they know that if, if they break the rule, somebody's going to crack their head and take their ministry away from them if they break it. See, God wants people to obey him because they love him. They desire to do what's right because Christians are people that are saved from sin, and so they love doing what's right. It's what honors God. It's what praises him. It's what exalts Jesus Christ. And so that's why we do it. So we need Christians in the last days that are living for Christ in that way with a spirit of obedience because, folks, there are just too many people that are laughing at us. There are too many people that want the opportunity to mock Christians because of our hypocrisy. They want to use that against us. And, and there are some churches, church members that are all too eager to give people all the ammunition they need to mock Christians. See, this is what God said to David. You remember he sent the prophet Nathan to David? And David was guilty of adultery with Bathsheba. He was guilty of the murder of her husband Uriah. And Nathan came to him and he said, By this deed thou hast given occasion for the enemies of God to blaspheme. And there are many Christians that are living like that. They're disobedient, and so they've given the scoffers all the ammunition they need to shoot at Christians just to make fun of us. So the spirit of obedience says, I don't need somebody to watch me. I don't need a rule posted on the church door at my house. I will serve the Lord because it is the right thing to do. And do you know what that is? Peter said it this way. We read it this morning in our congregational reading. He said, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation or your good way of life in Christ. For it is better, if the will of God be so, that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. So what is he talking about? What is that hope that's in you? Well, the hope that's in you is that you belong to Christ and that when he comes back, he's going to take you home to be with him. And so if they speak evil of you, don't let it be because you've given them an excuse to tell something evil against you. Let it be a lie. Let it be slander. But as you know and I know, too often it is the truth, and we know it's the truth. So if we really did believe that Jesus would come back right now, if we have that hope in us, won't that change our behavior? The Apostle John said, we do not want to be ashamed at his coming. 
So that's the first imperative that we have. And that is that, that, that God says, keep the prophecy of this book. Let it guide you. Protect this. Hide God's word in your heart that you might not sin against God. Now, secondly, living in the light of Christ's imminent return, we have the command here to worship God. We're to worship him. In the eighth verse, it says, And I, John, saw these things and heard them. And when I had heard and seen, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel, which showed me these things. Then saith he unto me, See thou do it not, for I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren the prophets, and of them which keep the sayings of this book. Worship God. Now let me say something first about what John did here that he was rebuked for. He heard the words from the angel, and then he fell down to worship at the feet of this angel. And there's a lot of disagreement about what happened here. Uh, On one side, you have people say that, well, it was not John's intent to worship the angel, that he was just overwhelmed by this, and so he fell down to worship, but he wasn't really worshiping the angel. And they take that because John had been given an earlier command. In chapter 19, verse 10, the same thing happened. And I fell at his feet to worship him, and he said unto me, See thou do it not. I am thy fellow servant of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And so the reasoning goes that John was warned previously about this, and so he wouldn't so soon do what he'd been told not to do. There are others that say that John lapsed and he was overtaken by the majesty of this angel and so he did what humans tend to do, that they would worship the angel instead of worshiping God. Now, whichever side that you take from that, we ought ought to at least learn this from what's said, that we are not to worship any creature. We are to worship God, the one who transcends the creation. So we don't worship angels. We don't worship Mary We don't worship living or dead saints. We don't pray to them. We don't ask them to intercede for us. We don't do any of that. And you know why? Because if you do, all you're doing is offering up a dead prayer. Those are prayers that have no outlet. They're they're stuck in a cul-de-sac. And so uh, they don't go anywhere. If you pray to an angel, that doesn't go anywhere. You pray to Mary, that doesn't go anywhere. You might as well pray to a fence post to have just about as much effect. In fact, you'd be better off praying to the post because God didn't say don't pray to post. Now, I'm not encouraging you to go pray to fence post. That would be wrong too. That'd be against God. But he says specifically, worship God. And the angel says, don't worship me. So that's dead worship and dead prayers. They don't go anywhere. What they do is make you a worse sinner than you already were because you directly disobeyed God. You blatantly disobeyed God by doing that. Now, the angel does say here, though, worship God, and that is an imperative. Well, what is worship? Well, we start back with the previous point that worshiping God is obedience to his commands. It's acknowledgement that you belong to him and you obey him because he is the one that's worthy to be obeyed. Now, you might, you might say to me, well, I'm not going to worship you because I've seen what you're like. I've seen you do some things that are wrong. I've seen you make wrong decisions. I've seen you act in the wrong way. You're not worthy of my worship. And I suppose that's why nobody's ever done to me what what John did to that angel. I've yet to have somebody come and fall at my feet to worship me. Now, I have had a few times that people called me father. And that's kind of interesting. We had a fellow 
that wanted to come into the church one afternoon and he wanted to pray. And so uh, he wanted to go over and sit in front of the cross over here. So he came into the church and he sat down there and he kneeled before the cross and prayed. And then when he left, he said, thank you, Father. And I said, dominoes, dominoes to you too. (laughs) We're not worthy of worship. Only God is worthy of worship. He's the one that's holy. He's the one that's exalted. He deserves to be worshiped. Obedience is worship. Thanksgiving is also worship. We take time to acknowledge all the blessings that God has given, where those blessings come from, that's worship. Praise is worship. How do you praise God? Is that lifting up your hands? Is that worship? Is it rolling around on the floor and jumping over the pews? Is it getting some kind of music going, a rock and roll beat going and shaking and grooving and all of that? Is it the smoke and the mirrors? Well, if it is, then I suppose that we don't worship God at Berean Baptist. I remember seeing somewhere church without smoke and mirrors, so we must not be worshiping God. A few days ago, there was a fellow that called me, and he just moved into our area, and uh, he was a member of a Baptist church in Southern California, and he gave me the name of that church, and So I decided that I would look it up to see what kind of a background that he had. And I don't know whether he agreed with this particular thing or not, but I was looking on the church's website, and I'd never seen it quite described in this way. But this church said, we have a contemporary worship with a rock and roll band. And, and, you know, occasionally I'll see something like Christian rock or I'll see praise band, but I've never seen anybody state it exactly as it is, a rock and roll band. So, you know, I, I would go and I'd want to see, are they playing ACDC? Well, what is that? And that, you know, that, that stands for actually crazy devil's children. What's that? That's all about. So what is worship? Well, I, I don't think that most people really have an idea of what worship is. Worship is not sensuality. Worship is not what makes me shake and groove. Worship is focused on God and not on us. And that's why you have people that go to churches and they judge the music programs and things like that. And how does that make me feel? Not what does God think about this? Does this honor God? That's not what they think about. What does it do for me? That's not worship. Worship has nothing to do with what it does for you. It's what it does for God. Worship is when you praise God for who he is and what he's done. Worship is like the song of Moses that you find in the book of Exodus when Moses praised God for the wonderful works that he did in bringing the children of Israel out of Egypt and he just enumerates all the things that God did there. That's worship. Worship is not see how jazzed up that I can get, how hyped up I can get. Watch me dance. Let me show you the pizzazz that I can bring to your church. And then... I see churches that have worship pastors and worship leaders. And I have to ask, what is that? What, what is a worship leader? I don't need somebody to lead me in worship. The Holy Spirit does that. The Holy Spirit's the one who acts in my heart and leads me to worship. It's not some man that is designated as a worship leader and a worship pastor. You can't get worship like that. Worship is directed by God himself. So what is worship? Well, worship is also trust. Worship is when you trust everything that God says. It's when you realize that he alone is worthy of your trust. 
You know that Paul says in the book of Galatians, he says, if an angel comes to you and preaches another gospel than we preach, he said, let him be accursed. You know why he says that? Because angels are not to be believed above God. You believe God. You trust him. And, that, and that's kind of interesting too. What if God said to you, you can't trust my word? Well, how would you know he's telling you the truth? I mean, is it true that you can't trust his word? And then he says, well, you can trust my word. How do you know that's true? So if anybody ever comes along and says God's word is not true, then you know that's not somebody who came from God. Worship is when you trust God in everything. And that's part of the duty of Christians living in the last days, living in the expectancy of the return of Christ. Keep on worshiping God. Never stop worshiping him. And then thirdly, and uh, we'll stop with this, and that is to witness of the event. This is another thing that Christians do living in the light of Christ's return. We witness of the event. Verse 10 says, And he saith unto me, Seal not the sayings of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. So what do we need to witness? Well, we tell people that Jesus is coming. You need to be ready for Christ's return. And you tell them there is no second chance. When he comes, it's too late. It's too late for you to come to Christ when he comes. And tell them that when he comes, they're going to be left behind. Now, don't hand them a Left Behind series book. Give them this book. Give them the Bible. Tell, read that. You're going to be left behind if you don't trust in Christ. Now, it's been 2,000 years since Jesus was here, and he came the first time as a response to prophecy. Prophecy didn't make him come. It was the fulfillment of prophecy. It came true. So as we talked about in that first message, 330 Old Testament prophets, prophecies said that Christ was coming. And when he was born in Bethlehem, all of those 330 prophecies came true. And now we have this sure word of prophecy that he's coming back. The next event on God's prophetic calendar is the rapture. When Jesus comes back to receive his people back back into heaven, or take them into heaven, I should say. So the next event on God's calendar is not an earthquake in, uh, in Japan. It's not a tsunami in Indonesia. It's not a hurricane in New Orleans. The next event is the rapture of God's people. So we ought not to be too concerned about discerning the signs of the time and looking for all of that. The next thing you look for is Christ coming and not anything else. So that next event is when he comes, and when he comes, it's going to be a surprise to many people in the world. Uh, The Bible says it's going to overtake them like a thief in the night. So how do you avoid that? How can people avoid being surprised in that way when Christ comes? Well, how? Somebody has to witness to him. Somebody has to tell him that he's coming. So God said, you don't seal up this prophecy. Don't hide this thing away. Don't put it up somewhere and keep it secret. You don't be like those that thought the book of Revelation is so weird that they didn't even want to include it in the canon of Scripture. Don't be like those that say, it's not even worth our time to talk about this. He says, don't seal it up. Jesus is coming, he's coming, he is coming. And here's something you need to do as a Christian, or so I should say you shouldn't do. Don't let your approach to this whole thing be a bumper sticker approach. Yeah, I'm going to tell people that Christ is coming. So I have a bumper sticker on my car that says, in case of rapture, this car will be unmanned. That's not how we're to approach this. You know, we had a fellow 
that came into the parking lot early on on Sunday morning, just a few weeks ago. I was just arriving for Sunday morning services, and this fellow pulled up into the parking lot, and I was getting out of my car, and he had a bumper sticker on the back of his car that said, in case of rapture, can I have your car? And, and he was proud of that. And I got out of my car, and he walked me behind his car so I could read his bumper sticker. And he was proud of that. And I didn't think anybody would be brazen enough to do that on my own turf. This is not a war of bumper stickers. You've got to do your duty where you work. Do your duty with your friends. Instead of letting them see your wild lifestyle, let them see your worshipful lifestyle. Let them know Jesus is coming and they need to trust him. So this is what we do. We obey him, we worship him, and we witness for him. And that's what it means to live in the light of Christ's soon return. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great blessings that you've given us and just the joy of being able to look into these scriptures and to think that Jesus is coming back. With all of our heart, we believe that you could come at any moment. And Lord, uh, I just pray that we would live in the light of that, that we would live as Christians who are expecting that Christ could come back at any time. And that shows up in, in our lifestyle, shows up in the things that we do on a daily basis. Living in the light of Christ's return is this obedience, the worship. It's all of this, this, this the obeying of commandments, the worshiping God, and, and then, Lord, just a witness for you. Help us to be that kind of people. Thank you, Lord. And We just pray that you speak to your people tonight. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.